on this episode of What If with me, Rosie. And me, Lorraine. We have former politician, star of Strictly Come Dancing, broadcaster and author Ed Balls. It's so good to see you, Ed. Good to be back. And uh, <laughs> I'm not in a normal it's... studio. It's... Normally yeah, I'm sitting at nine in the morning with you in, 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 in ITV studios. It's so good. I wanted to ask you, though, when you were wee, when you were a child, I wanted to be an astronaut. Rosie, what did you want to be? I don't know. I still don't know. No. I wanted to be a football manager for a bit when I was like a teenager. You did. You wanted to be a football manager. Yeah. That's very true. And I know Ed loves football as well. But what did you want to be, Ed? What did you, what, what was your sort of like thing where you thought, I've got it. This is what I love. This is what I'm passionate about. I definitely wanted to play for Norwich City. I grew up right. in Norwich. And so I would love to have been a footballer, but it didn't quite happen. And also I would love to have been a doctor. I found the sight of blood just a bit too difficult, you know. Mm. When, and that would, when my, that would be a hint. When I was eight <laughs> years old, seven years old, I fell on this hill just outside Sheringham in Norfolk and cut my knee. And my dad had my little brother with me. We ran down the hill, got into the car, drove to Cromer Hospital. I went in, had five stitches in my knee. And when I came out, my dad wasn't there. And it turned out that he'd been admitted because having done the whole drive, got me into A&E. He then went out and passed out and fell on this whole row, row of bicycles, was then no. admitted himself. So I ended up visiting my dad. And unfortunately, I inherited the same thing. So, you know, if I ever mm. kind of cut my hand or um, something, then I'll go wobbly. And so I realised being a doctor was just not going to work out either. Probably not. So in the end, I think Probably. after that, I studied A-level economics and I really wanted to be involved in making the economy work in a better way. I grew up in the 80s when unemployment was really high and that's what we sort of studied and I thought, I thought maybe I could do something different. So to work at the Treasury in the government was what I wanted to do. And it happened. It did. So there you go. Mm, I don't think I, I ever thought at the time I wanted to be elected. That came later. But I did want to work in the government and you know, unemployment was so high in the early 80s and it was like it was inevitable. And I thought, is it possible mm -hmm. to do it better? And you went to some of the best unis ever, Oxford yeah. and, and then Harvard. What was that like? Well, Oxford was great, but I think I was kind of a provincial land from Nottingham. And, you know, I'd hardly ever been to London, let alone anywhere else. And so I think I was quite shy when I was first there, but I really enjoyed it and didn't do much work in my second year, worked hard in my final year. I was ended up being the college president of the undergraduates and I kind of got into the elected world a bit. And then when I went to Harvard, that was the first time I ever went on an aeroplane. I got a scholarship to, to, to Harvard and my tutor had come from America as a Rhodes Scholar in the 60s. And on a boat, I think he came and he said, you should go and do one of these scholarships. And it was a Kennedy scholarship. And I got accepted and I had to go to the library to look up where Boston was because I, I, didn't, I didn't know <laughs> where it was. And then my first ever aeroplane flight was flying to, to Harvard. And when I went, uh, I couldn't afford to come back for the whole year. And back then there was no emails, no mobile phones. So the only thing you could do is I could ring home once a week for 15 minutes. And other than that, so it was an amazing adventure. It was very exciting. And I learned a lot. But you know, when I think now of our kids and how worldly they are, I think I look back on my on me then and think you know, how how inexperienced and how kind of local I was. And uh, <laughs> so, I mean, that changes in life and kids grew up with very different experiences nowadays. The internet means we're sort of connected to people all around the world. Back then, you know, it wasn't like that. No, it wasn't. I mean, you went away to somewhere like America, even America, and you're isolated. It's like you're on the moon or something, or you're in the International Space Station. It's just utterly bizarre, isn't it? But you went into you went into journalism, and I just wonder what if 
you had stayed in, in journalism because you worked, of course, with Financial Times instead of going into into politics. What do you? I wondered why you made that change. Well, there was a particular reason why I made the change. I'd gone into the Financial Times because they offered me a job to write about economics and and about policy, and I was writing the editorials. So I was writing the opinions from you know pretty young age, twenty three. But I also did a lot of travel for the FT. And three or four years in, I applied for the job of being the Africa correspondent, which would have meant going to Nairobi for two years. And I said to them, I don't want to write this as a war story. I want to write the story of Africa as a continent, why economically it's not doing well, the debt burden. This was in the, um, the early 1990s. And the editor called me in and said, we're not going to give you the job. If you want to go to Tokyo or Berlin or to Washington, absolutely fine. But it's just not a pro- it's just not a priority for us to send mm-hmm. you to Africa. And I think I basically resigned the next week because I decided that if they wouldn't let me do that, which really felt like a big kind of project for me, then I'd leave and go and work in politics. And so, well, I mean, it's a part of the world that, I've, that we've been yeah. to, and we absolutely love. And it's one of those things that you're absolutely right. So much potential. I know. And so, I mean, they should, every single person in Africa should be doing well. Exactly. You know, when you look at the resources. And there's so much should. There's so much history and so much conflict yeah. and so much division. And for the FT in that period, I'd been to Ghana a couple of times. For a fortnight each time, I'd been to Nigeria lots of times. I had a kind of a terrible experience where I got arrested overnight in the airport in Nigeria and they tried to expel me. And so I'd had kind of lots of kind of difficult experiences, but also the people were so amazing and determined and vibrant and poor and you just wanted to understand how we could make this better and I think I think I felt a mission about it and then the FT didn't didn't let me do it and so they didn't go for it they didn't go I'm so glad you I mean getting expelled from Nigeria what on earth did you do well it, (laughs) it, it was it was an amazing thing but it actually kind of it was a disaster I was flying out with the Africa editor Michael Holman on the British Airways flight. And, you know, incompetently, I always cut things fine. And I missed this flight from London to Lagos. And the only way to get there was to switch to, from Heathrow to Gatwick, to get the Nigeria Airlines plane, which arrived at three in the morning. And when I arrived at three in the morning, my driver was supposed to come from the FT, wasn't there. And I hung around in this sort of white suit, aged 25, in this airport feeling well dodgy and this guy comes over and says I'm sorry sir he said you have to come with me and I got (gasps) escorted and I I didn't I I tried to resist the driver arrived and said look we've got to go with this guy get taken down into the bowels of the airport went into a room where the guy was actually sleeping on the floor and he got up went around to the desk opened his desk drawer brought out a gun put it on the table and said (gasps) Mr Balls welcome to Nigeria Oh, geez. Like something at that awful. moment, I didn't know what was going on. And it turned out simultaneously, the secret police had gone round to where the other FT people were staying to try and make them come with them. And they refused until the morning. And then they, they left with the ambassador to come to the airport. And what was going on was it was the transition from the military dictator Babangida to this new arrangement, which was just happening, to the transitional council with this new uh, non-military president and the secret service guys hadn't got the memo saying it was okay to let the ft in we were actually going to abuja to interview the new transitional president 
and the secret police tried to arrest us and expel us and flee some phone calls were made. And then suddenly the um, chief executive of the airport came in and said, there's been a terrible mistake. We're terribly sorry. Can we get you a cup of coffee? And within three hours, we were meeting with the president in Abuja doing the FT interview with the new leader of Nigeria. But in the intervening period, you know, you can just see how things can go wrong. So mm-hmm. I saw some, some, some sharp end journalism. But also because of that, you have really got a hinterland. You have got experience. You're not just going straight. Because an awful lot of politicians now tend to go to university and then straight into politics mm. in one form or another. And I always think it's really good to have, to have that, you know, don't you? Yeah. To have that sort of background before you before you go into politics. I think that's right. Although I was still quite young when I went in. I was still in my late 20s. I ended up being an advisor with Gordon Brown in the Treasury just when I was 30. So I think probably lots of people would have thought I was one of those young is young punks. And I think there is something about politics. You do need to train and learn and get experience. People who come into politics later in life often find it really hard. If I was having, you know, an appendix operation with a surgeon, I wouldn't say there'd be a better surgeon if they spent the last 15 years writing about Africa for the Financial Times. I'd kind of want them to spend 15 years yeah, learning the enough. trade. So yeah, I think there's a balance to be enough. struck between, on the one mm-hmm. hand, people having real life experience, but also mm-hmm. people who actually have uh, taken the time to, to learn how to do it. So th- there is a balance there. I- I'm not one of those people who just says, you know, anybody who makes a career of it is, is wrong. But I do think, mm-hmm. as you say, having wider experience helps too. I think one of the issues that I find anyway with politics now is there, there seems to be kind of this out of touchness. Yep. And it's, it's kind of a lack of trust at the moment. It's very different now compared to when I was a teenager yeah and yeah, no, I it's think not that long ago but it's like I think that's a fair point that's I think right. trust is something that's that has gone and and that's really that's really sad really sad actually and it must be sad for you because you know you've invested so much of your life in trying to change things you know in in politics generally and it has changed a lot yes and I'm not sure how much of that is the fault of politics and how much of it is also a bit all of our responsibility. I think every time a politician doesn't answer the question, isn't isn't clear, doesn't explain why things are hard. You know, politics is not a learning profession in the way it should be. It should be okay to say, look, we made a mistake and here's what we've learned from it. The only reason why we have safe airlines and good doctors is because if there's something goes wrong, people learn from it and talk about it and we make it better. And politics... I think politicians find it very hard to do that. But then the media and wider environment also makes that hard because anytime anybody makes a mistake, it's, ah, oh, what a disaster, how terrible they are. Every time anybody says in an interview, well, we couldn't expect a straight answer from a politician, they sort of feed that idea. And I suppose after, after doing Strictly, you know, I still get this now, what is it now, six, seven years later, people will say, we always knew you were a politician but it's great to see that you've now become a human being. As if somehow <laughs> in the old world, if you're a politician, you must be weird and odd and different and out for yourself. And I think it's really important. And politicians need to show more of this than actually politicians have, you know, have families and aspirations and they make mistakes yeah. and they can be vulnerable and that's okay. And if you, if you think politician, to be a politician, you've got to be on this pedestal and every time you don't quite do everything right, then it's a disaster. That means in the end, politics is is always going to feel like it's failing. You mentioned Strictly. Oh, which oh we have to sorry, talk. yeah. 
I didn't mean to. Um, I didn't mean to. <laughs> what made you want to do it? And have you ever thought, what if you hadn't, if you hadn't gone and done it? Well, I think if I hadn't gone and done it, then I would have not had lots of the opportunities I've had had since. Yeah. You know, mm. I wouldn't have done the television programs about. Donald Trump and Trumpland or Euroland, I wouldn't have, <laughs> I, I wouldn't have been able to do the film about social care because it opened up a whole new kind of avenue for me. And, you know, it meant people saw me really differently. I mean, people will in, in the street, I had it a couple of days ago. Somebody came up to me and said, are you Ed Balls? And I said, yes. And, I, and he said, I used to really hate you. And <gasps> I don't anymore. Ooh. I like you now. Ah. And actually strictly <laughs> allowed this sort of reappraisal, but it's sort of, again, it's kind of slightly odd thing because actually I'm not sure why did they hate me before but maybe it was just because I was a politician so they so strictly definitely opened up a whole load of things and also I mean let's be honest I played the O2 for four shows and I've performed yeah. at the Glasgow is it the Glasgow Hydro the, the arena in Glasgow yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I mean, if you're Bruce Springsteen or Coldplay you're probably a bit complacent <laughs> about playing packed arenas but in my life how could I have ever had that opportunity and suddenly there it was going out with Katia to do Gangnam Style in front of 15,000 people it was it was wonderful <laughs> and that never gets old you doing Gangnam Style never <laughs> gets old it is the best absolutely one of those moments one of those strictly iconic mm-hmm. moments oh, it definitely gosh. was but the thing about you was you just you went for it you just thought right I'm here I'm going to do this I'm going to go for it and you could see in your face that you were having a blast it's true but I don't think I knew that's how it would be to begin with and, and originally, I was definitely going to say no. I was never, I mean, I thought it was, when I was approached by the BBC, I thought it's a crazy idea. How could somebody like me possibly go into this programme? And I said to Yvette, my wife, um, what do you think? And she said, why would you say no to going on the biggest TV programme in the world and seeing if you can pull it off and mm. see if you can dance? Yeah. Why don't you just have a go? And I then rang Jeremy Vine, who I'd been on the radio with lots of times, but I didn't know him very well. So I kind of, I messaged him on social media and then we had a phone call. And I said, what did you think of it? And he said, it was easily the most enjoyable, life-affirming experience of my life. And if you've got the chance, he said, just go and do it because you will love it. But the first week, they made me do a waltz to Are You Lonesome Tonight in front of, you know, a mock-up of the House of Commons in a suit. And I'd said to him in advance, I'd said, I don't want to do Latin, I don't want any sequins. And they said to me, well, I'm not sure we can actually allow you to do no Latin, but we don't need to have any sequins. But I was so stiff. And then I think I just realised, what was the point of going on this programme and not just going for it, letting go? Yeah. And mm. so the second week was a Charleston. I think I was like a guy in a jeans and a banjo and just <laughs> went for it. And I think I think it just decided that actually, you know, that in the end, what's the point of doing it by halves? Yeah, you've mm. got to you've got to just go for it. You mentioned your wife, Vive, yeah. and you, you talked about politicians being human beings. She is one of the few that actually has always come across as a as, as a human being. Yeah. And of course, she's she's doing incredibly well. I mean, for goodness sake, huge responsibility that she has right now. And do you feel that the because both of you were in the cabinet together at one point, were you not? We were. We were the first ever yeah. married couple to be in the cabinet in history. And there's not been another one since. And and it was hard. It was at the end of the Labour government, 2008 and nine, And it was the period where, as Rosie was saying, politics was becoming less popular. And mm. there were these, this husband and wife who were both politicians. I think the public reaction to us was, was, was quite negative. You know, oh my God, are they both politicians? You know, do you think they're bringing up their kids to be politicians too? 
Is that all they ever talk about at home? And the the reality was, it was I think it was it was hard on a vet because I think that the, you know, the the public reaction to her as being the woman in the relationship was was more negative. People never ever called me Mr. Cooper. But they did call her Mrs. Ball mm-hmm. on television, oh, and it was just, Isn't that and it was, yeah. and so we sort of were very careful. We didn't appear together. We didn't do interviews together. We tried to be very politically separate. And although you know, I'm sure nobody believes this, the reality was we had three kids under nine at the weekends and in the evenings when we got home. The last thing we wanted to do was talk about politics. I mean, it was we were trying to make things as normal for them as we could, and we protected them. Hugely. So there's no photos anywhere of me and Yvette and our kids. We never, ever allowed them to be public figures. And that was also their choice. Our oldest daughter, I remember it so well. She's she's amazing. She's 22 now. But when she was 11, 12, uh, saying to us, she said, you just need to understand, when I walk across the playground at school, I want to be me first, not to be the daughter of these politicians first. And yeah. we've, I think we've always really tried to respect that. We wanted it, and it's also what they wanted. They wanted to have their own identity. I think the fact they're called Cooper makes it a bit easier as well, because there's, there's more yeah, Coopers out there. Yeah, there, there is, because Rosie, you're Rosie Smith. Yeah. But you still got a little bit of that, didn't you? A wee bit. We try to, you know, it's hard, isn't it? But we so always try to protect you. But mm-hmm. because I think, because you, you're Rosie Smith, because Smith's my married yeah. name. We are Mr. and Mrs. Smith age. <laughs> but me and my husband, me and my husband check into hotels. We do get funny looks. Well, look, <laughs> oh, yeah, Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Here we go. <laughs> if I was ringing up to make a restaurant booking, I would definitely say Cooper. I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. so much. The thing is, though, I think what you want is for your kids to be able to make their own choices at the right time for them about when they want to be, if sure. they want, public. But it shouldn't be something which you impose upon them when they are much younger, I don't think, because I think that they need to have to be able to make those those choices. And our, our oldest daughter, there was a particular moment a couple of years ago when there was a lot of kind of hate towards MPs and Yvette had a lot of difficulties. And then there was a clash in the House of Commons with a a Labour MP called Paula Sheriff with the Prime Minister. And our daughter just decided, she said, I'm going to do a, a public tweet saying this is not the right way to behave. And we were saying, right. you know, she was 20 at the time. We said, are you sure? She said, no, this is the moment where I just feel I have to, as an adult and as a person, say there's a right way to treat politicians, but this is dangerous. And she, she it's the only time she's ever done it, but she, she chose, that was the moment she felt somebody had to voice the fear and worry and concern about people who live on the inside of politics. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, you two are both very good cooks, whereas I am Mm. not. No, you are, Rosie. You're Mm. very good. Was it choice or survival, Rosie? Oh. Or survival. Uh, Probably, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah, survival with, with mum in the house. Yeah. But then boredom, when it was lockdown, I had nothing to do. So yeah, I just... So I think a lot of us cooked, a lot of us did. You did I got into trouble with that. I tried to innovate during the lockdown. And after about oh. a week of trying new things, my youngest daughter said, Dad, what are you doing? Why are you cooking all this yeah. new stuff? Just do the things yeah. you know we like. And of course, you won Best Celebrity Home Cook in what, 2020 that was, I yeah. think? Best Celebrity Home Cook. And did that lead then to the book, to Appetite? It did, although in a sort of unexpected way, because the actual story was that I had made a, a cookbook at the request of our oldest daughter when she was 18. And we said, what do you want for your 18th birthday? She said, what I'd really like is a photo book of all of dad's recipes. And we made this photo book called Dishes for My Daughter, which has, I wrote out 65 recipes. We put photos around them all. There's only three copies in the world. So I'd written all the recipes out. And then, so then on Best Home Cook, I used all those recipes, but I never referred really to her book. But then afterwards, when I won, it was Holly Harris and Simon Schuster was in touch and said, you know, don't do, she said, a, a cookbook because chefs do cookbooks. Why don't you write yeah. about why food has been important in your life? And uh, she actually said that at the end of the last pandemic in the 1920, the big best-selling book at the time was written by the American President Roosevelt. He wrote a book called Letters to My Children about the importance of family and growing up. And that there's something about the pandemic which brings us all back to being together, family, relationship, valuing what we've got, being able to be together, including cooking and eating together. And so it just sort of, it felt like, the right thing to do at that at that point in the in the pandemic to for me to think about why food has been important in our lives and food has been the biggest thing <laughs> sorry i'll start that again. food has been incredibly important for you because mum was telling me that you were three weeks old when you had your first meal yeah it wasn't, roast wasn't beef and yorkshire pudding roast beef and yorkshire pudding but can i just say this was not this was not my mum being irresponsible this was norwich <laughs> 1967 I think I was nine pound ten ounces when I was born, so I was a big baby. Okay, right. three weeks. But my brother was ten eight, I think. I mean, <gasps> your poor mother. And so, three weeks in, the health visitor came round, saw me, and said, "Milk is not enough for this growing lad." <laughs> the health visitor said, "Put him, put him on solids." At three, at three weeks. And these days, I mean, I think you'd get into trouble with child protection for that. But back then, and my mum said, what, what, I mean, anything particular? She said, no, she said, just puree up whatever you're eating. So my dad wow. went out and bought a Moulinex pulper, and, uh, which was at the time was like the big kind of liberation um, technology to kind of speed up cooking in the kitchen. So that weekend I had roast beef and Yorkshire puddings mashed to a pulp. I mean, at three weeks. And you haven't looked back since? No, well, <laughs> With all this wonderful grub. I think I've always struggled with you. my weight, and I think I'm blaming my mum. I think from an early no. stage, that was maybe I had no choice. In Appetite, you do talk about, it is more, it's so much more than just recipes. I mean, the recipes are there, but like you said, it's about the joy of food and how it brings people together. And and I, I loved it for the sort of memories because I, I could relate to an awful lot of that cooking as well because my mum was a really good home cook. And that's what you, you are a, a home cook, I'm really. Definitely you know? a home cook. I'm not a fancy chef. I'm so, I'm the kind of home cook who, if you talk to the great chefs, and you know Angela Hartner and Mary Berry were like this on, on Best Home Cook. They thought that you should taste what you're cooking all the way through. Whereas if you're a home cook, it's actually nicer to wait until the end, 
and, mm. and see. So I actually really enjoy, you know, kind of the moment where everybody eats it, including me. And you think, did it work or not? I think that is not a chefy thing to do. That's a home cook thing to do. Do you do most of the cooking, like my husband and Rosie? Do you do most of the cooking in the house, especially? I mean, Yvette, you know, Shadow Home Secretary, she's kind of busy. Do you do you sort of divide it up between the two of you, or how does it all work with you? Two? Look, the reason I've got an affinity with Rosie is for me, it was absolutely survival as well. Because oh, really? no, no, I mean, so I do all the cooking at home. I mean, as in nobody <laughs> else cooks at home. Uh, to be fair, all our kids have kind of st- started doing their own cooking now. But growing up for them, I did all the cooking. The reason was when I first met Yvette's mum in our early 20s it turned out Yvette's mum had had retired from doing all cooking in the house when her younger son was 18 she said I've had enough I'm not doing any more and Yvette fast forwarded it by 20 years and she retired on the day our first child was born she just said I'm not going to cook I'm too busy so to begin with I mean if I hadn't cooked we wouldn't have eaten so, so, exactly. so that's where it really began and I just carried on and I think the truth is I've found it to be both uh, it's a great diversion. It's really relaxing. And also I like when everybody's together and enjoys it. And Yvette sort of, you know, I think she did cook a bit in her 20s, but, you know, I think she could probably do risotto now. You can do paella. That's your thing. That's my thing. In that it's book paella. I did for my daughter, you know, the, the cookbook, Yvette's yeah. got one page, mm-hmm. which is called Mum's Quick Meals. It includes cheese on toast, which is make toast, put cheese yes. on Oh, that was that, it. oh, that's what you do. I could do that. Yeah, tomato yeah. Do tomato that. with pasta sauce. Cook pasta according to instructions. Pour on tomato sauce mm. from jar. That's it. We want to talk about Ed Balls Day. Ed Balls Day. Celebrated uh, a decade. Do, do really it's been to, ten years. Do we have to talk about that? We have to talk about it. <laughs> You've got a day. I know. Not many people a have a day. No. Martin Luther King, St George. Okay, okay. okay. I mean, you know, yeah, the Queen. I think they may have made a bigger contribution to get their day. <laughs> I mean, St George slayed a dragon, and Martin Luther King kind of led the civil rights movement. And what did I Indeed. do? Didn't understand well, social media. I mean, exactly. Uh-huh. That basically was it, wasn't yeah. it? But it's still funny, and it's still. This is the thing. It's it's very endearing. I think things like that. <laughs> it's like what you said about politicians being human beings and not automatons. And, you know, that's important. It's really important. And I that, remember somebody saying, why don't you delete it? And I said, could I? <laughs> I didn't realise for two years that you could actually, I thought once you'd done it, it was done. I thought it was kind of there. So for two years, it was two years before I found it. By that point, it was too late. It's too late. It's gone. Yeah. Oh, it's a wee. And now oh, it's, it's got a life of its own. Yeah. Hasn't it? Mm-hmm. Definitely has. We talked about you, you know, the, the endearing thing and you being open and all the rest of it. And I, what I thought, one thing I thought that was really good, both of us thought this, didn't we? Yeah. Was, was about the fact that you talked so openly about your stammer. And you've talked about that before. And you've, and because that's really, that's really Im, Im, important. Because I, I think a lot of people say, how on earth can, if you've got a stammer, well, well how on earth can you go into public life? And of course, <laughs> you did. There were moments when I asked that question myself because, you know, I didn't really. I'd had some challenges when I was a teenager, but not insurmountable. And it was only really once I'd been selected to be to go into Parliament and I was on any questions and it kind of went wrong. And my stammer isn't a stammer where I can't get the words out. It's more of a block where at a certain point you can't get the words to come. And I did this on any questions. And my dad rang me the next morning and said, I don't know what you've got, but it's the same as me. And I think it might stop you ever getting on in politics, which was really kind of unhelpful at the time because I was already on that track. And it took to another four years before I found out it was a stammer. I was in the cabinet by the time it was actually properly 
people said this is a stammer and they said you know you need therapy and I said I can't have therapy I'm a cabinet minister cabinet ministers don't have therapy it goes back to Rosie's point about politicians and uh, not being able to kind of talk about yeah, their lives. Yeah, fallible in any way. So I met the therapist and she said, you know, I can help you. She said, but I don't think you'll ever find it easy to deal with this until you are public about it. And she said, you will find that the pressure will be relieved by being public and talking about it. And it took me two years from the moment she told me that to finally take the risk. And it was completely, completely right. And I think part of the reason why I've always spoken about it since is partly because it helps me to to talk about it but also there are so many people who have you know everybody has this idea in in, in life that, that somehow that there's this sort of perfect ideal and you're falling short but actually in life almost all of us have I mean all of us have something which isn't like the, the, mm. the perfect but actually it's also part of who you are that's kind of part of your makeup but it's really easy to cover things up and try to you know hide them away and in the case of the stammer so many people do that and it makes their lives so much much harder and I learned the hard way in a way as a cabinet minister that to talk about something publicly was liberating and so I've always thought that every person who who hears me talk about it or reads in the book and thinks maybe that's what I should do and often it can be talking to your your husband or wife or your family first let alone your work colleagues or your friends but the first step on opening up is liberating and so I've always thought if I could help people a little bit to do that then then that made it you know worthwhile but I only know that because I spent two years refusing to and trying to hide it Mm. and it was it was the concealing which caused all of the pressure and the tension. You were open about it was did anyone care or did anyone? No I mean the, the thing was it didn't there was a moment after I'd started talking about it, where I had a bad stammer in the House of Commons in about, I think, 2012, in the autumn statement. And I was quite halty at the beginning, and it was a stammer, but nobody understood that. And actually, I remember mm. coming on GMTV at the time, I think, and I yeah. was on with Ranveer uh, just after quarter past six in the morning. And she said to me, you know, you didn't do well yesterday. Did you let people down? And I thought, but it was my stammer, it was my stammer, but I decided, but I didn't say anything. And then I then went on the Today programme and they said the same thing, I don't know who it was who was interviewing me and said, and, and said the same thing. And I decided in that moment, I would say, you know, well, actually, you know, I have a stammer and sometimes it comes out and it did then, but I don't apologise for that. It's just part of who I am and it's not going to stop me doing my job to the best of my ability. Came out feeling, oh my gosh, what have I done? It was such a terrible error and I was quite tearful and I had to kind of revive myself to go on BBC Breakfast in Millbank. But actually the public response and my friend's response was all, you know, really good you said that. And I had lots and lots of emails from people saying, thank goodness somebody said, explained it and said something which really struck a chord with me so sometimes it would go go wrong but that point which I think I learned more than anything that it was it wasn't something I caught it wasn't something which is ever going to be cured it was just part of who I was and if mm. I owned it and just said it's part of who I am and actually was kind of quite proud of it but managed it then that would actually be so much better and there's no way I would have ever done Strictly if I hadn't kind of had my stammer and got through it because actually after that I mean, dancing in front of 10 million people live on BBC One was <laughs> nothing compared. It was so much easier. So, yeah, I think sometimes you just have to be willing to say, this is me, sort of take it or leave it. 
And would you do any other reality shows? Well, I was, I mean, I was not, I wasn't going to do Strictly in the first instance. I thought that was enough. I'm also uh, really scared of, I, I have a real problem with rodents. So that ruled out I'm a celebrity. I can't, I can't. Yeah, I could never do I mean, that. Could, never in a million years. I mean, I don't, I don't want to eat a kangaroo's bottom, obviously. <laughs> but I, I, I mean, couldn't cope with all the, yeah. all the. Insects. You're not allowed to do that. I would be, I'd be fine with snakes or cockroaches. No problem. Oh no. But, but no. a rat would be just the most. No. The no. worst thing which ever happened culinary wise was the day before Christmas, about eight years ago, my father-in-law opened our kitchen door and this rat came into the kitchen. <gasps> and I had to leave. There's a song about that, isn't there? I, I, I know, <laughs> there's a rat, the there was, and I didn't know what to do. So I, was, <laughs> so, so I was outside for three hours and they got a rat catcher to come. He managed to find it on Christmas Eve and he searched the kitchen, couldn't find it and said, look, don't worry, because he'll be more scared than you. I had to cook the whole Christmas dinner for 20 people, knowing that under the counter, was this little rat who was with us for three days. I mean, it was, oh. uh, even now I have this sort of physical. Yeah. Of, yeah, yeah, yeah and yeah. so the idea um, that I would ever choose to go into <laughs> a jungle, oh, just a nightmare. So, so no. no, if, but I, yeah, I did the cooking show, as you mm -hmm. said, but that was partly because yeah. it was the, the lockdown and everything else was falling apart and hmm. you know, it seemed like a fun thing to go and do. But I think probably, probably I'm done. But we're seeing you in lots of other things as well. I mean, obviously you've been doing GMB, which has been a, a huge success. Oh, you've been really doing all fun. sorts of things. I've loved doing Isn't Good Isn't it good? It's, it's such a, um, live telly is the best. Live telly is amazing. And actually learning that I could do, have the earpiece and all the talk back in my ear and the auto cue. Mm -hmm. That was really, I was quite daunted. I wasn't sure I'd be able to do that because I thought my stammer might get in the way. And every now and then it does a little bit, but not, not in a really bad way, but... The fact that you can move from talking about the future of the country to then talking about what was on TV and then yeah. can people can issues which are hugely important and personal and you just move, but you cover every aspect of our lives in a way which I think relates to so many people in so many parts of the country for so many different reasons. And it's such a privilege to be, to be allowed to do that. I find that the three hours just flies by and suddenly you get to the end and you think, God, it's over. <laughs> but it's really I mean I've, I've absolutely absolutely loved doing it and Susanna Reed is such a she's been so she's so supportive and professional class act total class every act. now and then though, she, she's always taking over my autocue for me because she looks at me and thinks he's, he's not going to say it so she says it for me and so um, <laughs> which is great it's wonderful she really is a, a class act oh fantastic gosh. wise and wonderful women wise and wonderful women so at the end of our episodes we always ask our guests the same questions Good. your biggest fail regret and win right we'll start with fail yeah look i think my biggest fail has to be being kind of as shadow chancellor live on television at eight in the morning thinking you know the couple of the days before maybe i'll be the chancellor of the exchequer to be um to lose my seat and to be to leave parliament and in a very very public way and you learn a lot about yourself in those moments and how you respond to it and how you pick yourself up and come back again and, and you learn a lot of humility but so i think in a way it was a very positive thing for me but it was you know the most public fail and regret i think one of the real positives about my life since 2015 has been to be able to be at home so much more with our children as they were doing their GCSEs and their A-levels. And our youngest is now doing her A-levels this summer, but I've been there for all three of them through these very difficult, stressful time. You know, it was like, it was like running a cafeteria, three different meals, <laughs> they could choose what they wanted. And my regret is that it was only in 2015 that I was able 
to do that or chose to do that. And I look back and think, you know, when the kids were younger, did I get the balance right? Did I prioritize the family enough? And, you know, it's a cliche, but I certainly look back and wish that, you know, I'd made different choices and when they were when they were younger. So, and I regret that because because you can never get that back. But I've worked really hard to try and make amends in recent years. I think that's a lovely regret, yeah. actually. Yeah. And and really good that you got the chance to to experience it. You know, you've noticed mm-hmm. thought I, I didn't get a chance to do that at all. You know, you, you absolutely did. I know, but even so, there were times when Everett and I were you're out late late voting together until well you know to midnight and you know and we would come home and then I would then when I was a cabinet minister and she was a cabinet minister leave again at seven in the morning and so you know we'd go for days where we would, wouldn't see the children and uh, that is something that I can't get back so I, I really really feel a sense of loss about that. We will end on a high with your biggest win. Gosh my biggest win that is it's easy to go to kind of the big picture for me in terms of things I was part of when I was part of the government and you know we introduced the national minimum wage I was really kind of central to the argument about about more money and investment in the national health service and the tax rise for the NHS in 2001 and we didn't join the euro and I think that was a great decision yeah. for Britain even though things have been you know not straightforward on the European issue since but actually those aren't the things I remember most the things I remember most are the the things I could do for individual constituents which were things I didn't have to do at the time and for me something small but were life-changing they're good wins very good they're smashing wins and that's what politics should be really you know at its heart that's what politics is about it's about changing people's lives for the better and I think that's what it should be I think that's right and the thing the thing I need to persuade kind of Rosie and uh, (laughs) is is that while it is the case that sometimes people make bad decisions and they make mistakes or they can not answer the question or be out of touch actually every day there are people in politics doing things which are you know small and not noticed it's important in a democracy that you have good people who want to become politicians absolutely what a joy. Ed Balls, thank you thank for you. talking to us. We really, really appreciate it. Thank you so, so much. 